On October 17th, we first opened this text. Um, You may remember it, you may not. And if you remember on that day, um, I began by asking us a couple questions, and these were the questions. And so I just want to remind you of the question. The question, questions are, what is Christian unity? And what is required in order to achieve it, to maintain it? What is Christian unity and what is required to maintain it? If you're like me, I, I quasi know things, but it's not until I'm put in a situation to really know things that I really know things. You know, it's kind of like one of the things uh, that I love uh, being a teacher. I've had opportunities to teach it in various environments. And what I've learned about being a teacher, and those of you guys who are teachers, you really learn something when you begin to really teach it. And not only do you learn it then, but when you really need, when you begin to kind of go through something, that's when you really, really learn it. So I think as a church, we're learning what is Christian unity. And it's critical because if, if you If we do not know what Christian unity is, we will be immature baby believers for the remainder of our lives. We will run away and run to other things. When things get, see, in essence, we talked about this. God has instituted, there's three institutions that God has ordained. The family, the home, right? The church, and the government. And those three institutions are constantly attacked. They're constantly attacked by the enemy. And, and what happens is the, 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 the intent of the enemy is to divide and destroy. And what I've seen in my own life, in my own failures and experiences, if I don't understand what Christian unity is, and if I don't know how to, to walk in a manner to, to zealfully maintain that unity, I'll disrupt it. I will disrupt it. I'll disrupt it in my home. I'll disrupt it in this church. I'll disrupt it in the government, right? If you think about the fall, what happened at the fall? What did Adam and Eve ultimately decide to do? What did they want? They wanted autonomy. They wanted life to be about them, their way rather than God's way. Rather than live upward to God, and live outward to one another, they chose to live inward to themselves. And so what, what does God do? God gives us a prescription. If we're gonna walk in unity, we gotta know what it is. And then, it's not just theologically knowing. This is my challenge to myself and my challenge to us. It's not just knowing something at a, at a, at a head level. It's, it's, it's technically at a street level where we apply it. And so as we've been going through what we've been going through, being out here, I know you, I'm free, I'm cold. I know y'all are cold. Why are we out here? Now, some of us aren't. Some of us are like, this is my, my weather. Hey, but I've, my family lives in Florida, so. Uh. No, but, but, but really, we, we've, been, we've been walking as a family to, to, to maintain the, 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 the spirit of unity that's what we've been doing that's why we're out here so let's just call it what it is we're loving each other we're pursuing this so 
we learned that there was two kinds of unity. There's positional unity. And this positional unity, basically, this is God's part. This is what God does. God has united us to himself. You read language in the Bible of oneness. God has made us one with himself. He's, he's created this unity. So as a church family, we are united to God positionally because of what God has done through the person and work of Jesus. So Jesus died on a cross for our sins so we can be forgiven and then reconciled to our Father, our Maker, our Creator. It's positional unity. And then when we became Christians, what the Holy Spirit did is He he baptized us into that body by regenerating our hearts. So positional unity is the work of God. It's the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. But then there's practical unity. And that's kind of what our passage is talking about. So when we're, as, as we're, we're, we're going through this, um, this is stuff that with the help of the Spirit, we do. So, so, so God is very clearly, he did speak to the, to the, uh, to the Ephesians. It's to them, but it's for us. This passage was written in a time and space to them, but it's for us as it's been passed down from generation to generation. So we're going to be looking at what are we to do with the help of the Spirit. Maybe I'd say it this way. It's God the Father, Son, and Spirit that creates unity. And with the help of the, with the, help of the Spirit, we preserve the unity when we walk worthy of our calling. There will be no unity if you and I do not walk worthy of our calling. There won't be. Forget about it. There won't be. So the context, what's the context? In brief, Paul was writing from house arrest around 62 A.D., the Christians in Ephesus, they were meeting in homes. The persecution was kind of around. Ephesus at the time was a very important, wealthy port city, and it was a Roman province, and it was technically located in Asia. And Paul, when it came to Ephesus, Paul had spent three years in Ephesus. So he was, I mean, he knew this was, if you read through the book of Acts, I mean, as you get 15, 16 into chapter 19, I mean, he, he knew all about the Ephesian church. He was instrumental in starting it and being part of it. And so he spent about three years there, and he saw God do some amazing things. Well, the church had really grown, and it exploded. And it was growing in diversity. And so what Paul does in this letter, he's, he doesn't write the book of Ephesians, Ephesians to address, like, uh, major issues Ephesians was written by Paul. This is amazing. It was written kind of in general to, to speak to, some, to, the, to the cosmic redemption that's happened in God. So it was a general letter that just gives some instruction. And as, as I've mentioned before, the structure of it, the first three chapters are just heady, very doctrinal. And then when you get to chapters four through six, it's very practical. So you see doctrine on the front end. And it's, it's a general doctrine, and he speaks about specific things. 
But then you get to practically, how do those things influence how we live out and some of the practical, how, they, how are they lived out in the church? How are they lived out in the home? How are they lived out amongst uh, working relationships? That's what Paul does. And so that's a little bit of the flavor. There's a lot of diversity going on in the, in the church of Ephesus. And so again, real quick, I wanna piggyback and get, get back onto the question that I first asked. What can we do to preserve the unity of our church family? What can we do? What can I do? What can you do? If we were sitting across from a table, um, maybe, maybe view this that way. I mean, I know collectively God sees us as a whole right now, and I think that's appropriate, but, but I'm not talking to the person next to you. I'm talking to you. And God's talking to me. So what can we do? And then next week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address this question from the text. Do we have enough in common to hold us together as a local body? So what do we need to do this week? And then the next week is, do we really have enough in common to hold us together as a body? And I would resoundingly say yes, according to the scriptures. I'll address that next week, but for today, unity requires two things, if you remember. First, it requires something that we must do. And so if we're gonna have unity, what must we do? Well, read with me verses one through three. Again, I'll read, just follow along. And remember, my, my aim is not to sit up here and be a good communicator. It's, it, I'm not up here to tell you a bunch of cool stories. It's not my goal. I wanna tell you what God says. And when we as a church come to situations, we need to look in the Bible to see what God says. So, so I'm, I'm, let's, let's look at what God says here, all right? So unity requires two things. It requires first, what must we do? So let's look at what must we do, all right? Verse one says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, Paul says, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So what Paul does here in verse one is he begs, he, you see the word urge, but maybe another rendition of that word, maybe even a more uh, kind of urgent word, uh, is the word urge. It, it's, it's a begging. What Paul is doing, he, he's so filled with the Spirit as he's writing, because you got to remember, for those of you who are Bible, uh, Bible, Bible nerds, perhaps, in chapter 3, how did he finish chapter 3? With an unbelievable doxology. Now unto him who is able to do exceeding, I mean, Paul, as he's writing, is just flowing and filled with the Spirit as he's writing. And then he comes here now to verse one. And he says, now I must urge you. I'm so filled. I see this. And now church, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Paul begs and he urges these believers. And as I mentioned, um, the word, and I, I want you to do me a favor. Circle if you have a pen or just take mental note of, of three words real quick. 
walk worthy and calling. So he's begging them to walk. Another, another, another way to translate this version or, or this word is, is live. Our ESV uses walk. NIV uses live. But the idea here is basically daily conduct. And what, what Paul is saying to them is saying to them, you need to live in such a way that reflects your calling. You need to have a day in and day out walking, living the Christian life. That's, that's worthy of your call. And, and this word walk, it's present active, it's continuous. You need to continue to do this. It's not just today and you're off tomorrow. It's not just this hour and then you're off the next hour. No, it's continued. So I'll just say this, just, just as an exhortation. If you're not walking, you're not practicing these things now, I want to challenge you to repent. I want to exhort you to repent. So walk. The second word, walk worthy. Walk worthy. What does this word worthy mean? What does it mean? Basically, as I mentioned, it's a balancing of the scales where on one side of the scale is, is this worthy life of Jesus. This, this worthy calling of salvation that he's called us to. And then what Paul is saying is, I want you to live in, in a way that balances that out, that reflects that life, that calling, that worthiness. So if you imagine a scale, somebody that's not living worthy, a worthy life, the scale's off. So worthy, worthy. The Christian life should balance out or be equal in weight to their calling. In essence, when we don't walk worthy, what often happens is we forget who we are. We forget that we are, we, we are, we are his children, that we are bought by the blood. We forget that we are saved. We forget that we've been called to it. So live worthy. Live worthy. And then the next word you see is calling. It's used four times in the book. It, 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 the word calling it, that in the original, it basically means to summons or to invite. Uh, Ephesians Christians, just like ourselves, we were called to something. And what were we called to? Well, saw, we were sovereignly called to salvation and the responsibility to living worthy lives. So what, what, what are you called to? What am I called to? Called to the Father through the Son. And I'm called to walk that out. So it's a call to salvation and living a worthy life. So with that said, Paul does us a favor and he says, well, let me tell you a little bit more about how that looks. Here's what a worthy life called by the Lord looks like as it pertains to preserving and maintaining unity. There are five characteristics. Number one, the first characteristics, and you see this in verse two, the first is humility. Verse two reads, with all humility, with all humility. Humility here, it, 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 it focuses on one's thinking. It means technically a lowliness of mind as opposed to like haughtiness 
or thinking of oneself as superior. Romans 12 is a good cross, uh, 12, 3 is a good cross reference. Romans 11, Romans 12, 16. It's thinking low in this culture uh, when, when Paul was writing, thinking low was the attitude of slaves. And it was considered uh, in this day and age a negative trait. It was not good. It was scoffed at. Um, slaves thought low. But the Greeks thought of themselves as high. But the Old Testament, this is, this is interesting. The Old Testament and Judaism, they, they actually viewed humility in a positive light. A good picture of this type of thinking and attitude, and when I think about the New Testament, you fast forward Old Testament and New Testament. Think about Philippians 2. Many of you know that passage. I think maybe a year or two ago, our church, we, we preached through Philippians Think about Philippians 2, 5 through 8 on the self-emptying mind of Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians, just as a flavor of what humility is. He says in verse 5, In your relationships to one another, have the same mind as Christ Jesus, who being, the, who, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So it's interesting that Paul here, you talk about characteristics, what's the very first one? It's humility, and it points us straight to Jesus, who although he was God, God very God, he set aside some things. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, taking on human likeness. He humbled himself. And, it, and, it, and if that wasn't enough, what did he do? He went and experienced the most cruel death you could ever experience, being blamed for stuff that he never did. So the very first one is humility. Humility. Humility, it's an awareness. I think when we really get down to it and we understand it, it's an awareness that all that we are and all that we have is from God. The humble person refuses to value themselves above others or to assign more privilege or more important to self than others. And hear me, church family, humility is essential for good relations in our family and for avoiding sin. So humility, the very first thing, it's a way of thinking. So let me just ask you, as I've been talking about humility, what comes to your mind? Well, the second, and I'll move a little faster. First is humility, the second characteristic of living a worthy life that will preserve unity in the church is gentleness. It's kind of like, oh, Paul goes from ah to ooh. Gentleness is meekness, and it's the product of humility. It refers to that which is mild-spirited and self-controlled. There's, there's an element of controlled strength 
I think of the example of a, of a broken in or trained horse. The horse is strong and it's powerful, but it's under control. That's, that's gentleness. I personally believe that this attribute here, this characteristic, is one of the key signs of growth and maturity, especially in parenting and in marriage and really in all relationships. As, as I'm getting older, I, I, I feel like that's the one characteristics where God, where God is constantly refining in me. Am I growing in my gentleness? Am I growing in meekness? Am I, I'm constantly asking myself these kind of questions. And, and in particular, am I growing in gentleness and meekness as it pertains to my children, as it pertains to my wife, as it pertains to, to people in the church, us, church family? I just want to say, if, if you see your leaders and they're not meek, that's not good. Should be strength under control. So meekness, it's a byproduct of humility. It's, it's mild-spirited. It's self-controlled. Second characteristic. Third is, is, is patience. He says patience. In the original, this word means long-tempered. And it's so interesting because it refers to a resolved patience. It is being steadfast while enduring suffering. And in the New Testament, it's described as a reluctance to avenge wrong. So it's long-tempered. It's resolved patience. So the first is humility. The second is gentleness and meekness. The third is patience. The fourth is forbearing love or love. And this is a bearing with an enduring God-like love. It's a, it's a continuous love and an unconditional love. It's, it has no, no reciprocity in mind. It's easy to love someone that, that loves you back. It's, it's, it's extremely difficult to love someone who doesn't love you. This is the type that, that gives whether or not it's returned it's the type that allows somebody to, to be able to pray for their enemies and persecutors. It's a godlike love. It's this agape type love. So, so forbearing love, this, this continuous, this resolved, this determined love. I mean, just think about that. What's God asking of us? He's asking us with the help of the Holy Spirit to be humble, to be meek, to be patient and to be loving, even if you don't feel or are receiving love from someone. That's Bible. I'm not telling you what you want to hear, nor me. <laughs> I look at this and I go, oh, forgive me, God. I don't know about you, but when relationships get hard, I, I know for me, it's kind of like, you know what? You don't want to love me? Fine. I'll go my way, you go your way. And in the church and in the home, it's not what God's saying. It's, it's, it's continuous, present, active here. A lot of these verbs 
are continuous. They're, they're continue love. Go at it. All right, the last one is unity. And I say unity because it says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Be determined to do this. To make every effort means to be zilful or to be diligent. Paul uses the same word, it's interesting enough, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, when he tells Timothy, he says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. It suggests basically um, there's difficulty. I know there's difficulty, Timothy, but be resolute in your determination to overcome it. So make every effort, be zilful. Um, our version says, be eager to maintain. It's, it's the idea of determination no matter what. I'm determined to preserve unity. And so as believers and in our home and in our church, we're to be diligent in keeping the unity. We need to be determined. And church, I just want to throw that out to us. Are, are, as, are you as an individual, are you determined to do whatever it takes to maintain the unity? And again, we don't create unity. God's the one who created the unity. Our unity is found in him. It's fixed. It's positional. The Spirit creates unity. And believers, with the help of the Spirit, are responsible to maintain it, to keep it. It's our, it's our, it's our role. With the help of the Spirit, we do this with the Spirit's help. And then finally, I want to close with this. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit it says, in the bond of peace. I think that's interesting. And here's why it's interesting. Uh, Paul was a prisoner. He, know, he knew what it was like to be in prison, to be bound. Has anybody got a piece of gum? Anybody chewing gum this morning? Any gum chewers chewing gum? Who's chewing some gum? Anybody? Anybody else? You got gum? Let me have it. A lot of love right here. Man, what kind of gum is this? <laughs> Paul says, that's pretty good. Um, tastes better than the coffee I was drinking. And it was coffee from my house. This coffee is really good, but the stuff I made this morning was struggling. Um, Make every effort to maintain the spirit of unity in the bond of peace. Now, if I were to come over here and I were to, I know somebody's about to kill me. Actually, let me, I don't want to mess this beautiful thing up, but can I have a, uh, here we go, let me grab my napkin. When I think about these two, as a paper towel and a napkin, just, they essentially do the same, same thing. When I think about these two, very different. But if I were to want, want them to come together and to stay together, there'd have to be something that would bond them. So next thing you know, Pastor Scott pulls out this piece of gum and he puts it on the on the paper towel, paper towel says, no, don't do that. And then he takes the napkin and he puts it here. And next thing you know, they're, 
They're bonded together. Be diligent to maintain the spirit of unity in the bond of peace. What binds us together, y'all? He says, peace. What's that peace? What's that peace? Bond of peace. Peace with God. We, we no longer are enemies of God. We have peace with God. And therefore, we can have peace with each other. But with the Spirit's help, these five characteristics must be on display continuously. So church, the way we make it through difficult times is with the help of the Spirit, we do these things.